it's no secret or big revelation for me to say that in life we're often asked to do things we don't want to do. Um, it's just a part of life, right? I mean, like we all have things <laughs> that we have to do we don't want to do. It's just a part of life. In fact, we're often asked to do things we know we should do but don't really want to, right? Like we all experience that in life. We experience this all the time at the Wakefield household uh, with the kids, you know, like, like, hey, kids, it's time to wake up and uh, get ready for school. I don't want to, you know, is the, the sound from various places within the, within the house. Kids, it's time to, you know, turn off the iPads and the electronics and, and go clean your rooms. I don't want to, you know, hear from various places. Scott, get up and go to church. You've got a sermon to preach. I'm just kidding. It's I do want to be here. I, I promise. I want to preach. I want to be here. Uh, today's message is the third in our series called Really Believe. And uh, today's message is titled, it's a long message, I care about reaching people for Jesus, but I prefer to avoid embarrassment and sacrifice. Uh, I want to introduce or reintroduce to you a word that is often one of those things that we know we should do, uh, but we don't really like to um, because of the cost to us personally. And as soon as I put this on screen, for a few of y'all who are fairly culturally savvy, you know that this word is a bit of a bad word in our culture today. You, you may see this on, on screen. You may go, a little bit on the inside. The word is proselytize. This is one of those things that we know we should do that we don't really want to. Convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another to advocate or to promote a certain belief or course of action. For example, I'll just give you an example. It just might be an example. He was proselytizing about the many wonders of Apple products, hoping his sad friends who are blinded by love and Windows and Android would see the light. Got a new staff member with an Apple watch on today. Represent. You know, it's Pastor Appreciation Month soon, so. <coughs> so proselytize is the kind of <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> that was supposed to stay inside. Another word for this um, that we know of in this context is the word evangelism. That's a word we may be a little more familiar with. Uh, proselytizing, evangelism, outreach are all about communicating the gospel, communicating the good news of freedom from sin that we have through a relationship with Jesus. Here at FCC, we have what we call the nine habits, ninehabits.org. The ninth habit is tell the story. That's how we talk about us communicating the good news that we have freedom from sin through Jesus. Tell the story of God's work in your life. It's the ninth now, nowadays, words that we just use, like proselytize or evangelize, uh, they've become sort of bad words in our culture. They're used to pigeonhole someone as a religious bigot whose every other word should be categorized as hate speech. Are we preaching yet? Like, that's how this word's often used. Like, if our ninth habit, if our ninth habit wasn't tell the story, but it was like evangelize the lost or proselytize the non-believer, or convert non-Christians. If it was something like that, all of those are, are entirely biblical. If it was something like that, and that was on our website, people would say, cult. People would look at us and they'd go, y'all are a crazy cult. 
maybe you're, by the way, a first-time guest here today, and you're wondering if we're a cult. Maybe you're thinking that. Um, I know some of you actually have family that already think that we are a cult. Um, we're not. Right? We're not. But, but I think, by the way, that if, if there's not somebody around you saying you're a little off-kilter religiously, or, or calling you a little bit fanatical and weird, then you haven't taken Jesus seriously enough. But don't worry, we're not a cult. We just happen to really believe that God is who he says he is and that salvation is real. Okay? That's just what we happen to believe. So proselytizing is a word that, that smart and culturally savvy non-believers use as a sort of sneery and a, an abiding retort when Christians like me stand up and talk about Jesus too much. Like, like don't try to proselytize me. That's kind of how it's used. Maybe some of y'all have experienced that kind of thing. Don't you dare try to proselytize me. Sell your Jesus stuff on me. The truth is in our world today, we're all being evangelized to believe all sorts of things around us all the time. I mean, studies reveal that when you walk out those doors today, you are going to be proselytized commercially at least a few thousand times. Estimates are up to five plus thousand commercials and ads that are proselytizing, evangelizing, telling you you're worth this, telling your identity is this, telling you to believe this, telling you to put your money and your lifestyle and your identity in this over here, in this godless thing that's not going to last. Proselytizing is everywhere. It's just that to talk about Jesus is the off-limits kind. It's just become rather uncool <laughs> to reach out to people about Jesus nowadays. It's just become culturally uncool to reach out to people about Jesus as opposed to, you know, pizza <laughs> or football. I mean, was that a great game or what? <laughs> I said on Twitter, a whole bunch of UT Vols fans are now going to name the next child Jawan. It's become rather uncool to reach out to people about Jesus as opposed to pizza or football or soft drinks. And as a result, a lot of Christians hesitate to do it. Like, let's just talk facts. I mean, a lot of Christians don't like to do that. It's in that category of, I don't want to. Like, we know we should, but we don't want to. And listen, I don't want to be that person in the grocery store that people avoid because, because he's a Jesus freak and he's going to talk to me about the work of God in his life. I mean, I, I want people to have a normal personal relationship with me, just like you do. But I don't think it needs to be as scary or difficult and crazy as we make it. I think it doesn't have to be that, that big a deal. Mostly, outreach is us needing to have our eyes open to the opportunities that are already around us all the time. Like every day there are opportunities to talk about the work of God. And if we're looking for them, and you're praying for them, you will be aware of opportunities to communicate the gospel all around you in ways that are not going to have to be, hey, <laughs> have you heard about my best friend Jesus? I had a good friend who's a mentor of mine uh, when I was a, uh, an elementary school kid. Um, this guy was an evangelistic crazy man. 
he said he would pray every day for one opportunity. And so he challenged me to do that. And I want to challenge some of you all to, to think that way about it. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to be some sort of like sermon. It can be you being you, talking to a friend about the work of God in your life, just being aware of it, praying for an opportunity a day because the awareness of the opportunities is a key. I had a pastor friend of mine who told me about an evangelism opportunity that happened uh, with a couple of his friends. They were at a coffee shop in Florida. This was years ago. And and my friend who was a pastor uh, was there with a a Catholic priest and a barista at the coffee shop. I know it sounds like the setup of a joke, right? There's a pastor and a priest and a barista. But the truth is there was a pastor, a priest, and a barista. And uh, they all got to know each other pretty well through this coffee shop. So one day when this barista was on break, he came to sit down with this pastor friend of mine and the priest. And the first thing he says is, uh, better be careful sitting down with these crew, you know, these two here at the table of a priest and a pastor. And then he said something that, that many of us have probably heard. I think religion is cool and all. <laughs> Religion's fine and all. But when people begin to push it on you, when they try to proselytize, he used the word like it was a bad word, <laughs> when they try to proselytize, he said it was sort of, sort of this scornful flare of disdain. Now, neither my friend, the pastor, or the Catholic priest, neither the pastor or the priest had, had brought up the topic. <laughs> the barista introduced it, which means if your eyes are open, boom, opportunity. Now, in this circumstance, my friend was considerably younger than the priest, and so, so my friend sort of deferred to him uh, to take the bait, you know, to like, jump in. There you go. But he didn't even flinch. His face didn't change. He just sort of changed the subject and moved on. He knew that the priest had been in the Navy, so he said, Hey, Blake, you used to be in the Navy, right? The priest asked him, and boom, for 10 minutes, the guy talked about the Navy. So the dude had just sat down with a table of religious professionals and had ridiculed evangelism. And they just went on with a conversation like nothing had happened. Friends, the question before us today is, do we really believe in evangelism? We're asking this question today because I'm not sure we really believe in it. We all believe that we should. But I'm not sure the fruit of our lives demonstrates a root that believes that outreach for Jesus is worth sacrifice and personal cost and perhaps even embarrassment. We, we Christians talk a good game. We all nod our heads outwardly. When the preacher talks about outreach or evangelism or missions or telling the story, but inwardly, honestly, many of us cringe at the thought of facing someone and putting our relationship on the line by raising the issue of their relationship with Jesus. It's one of those things that goes in the category of I don't really want to. Let's be frank. It's easier to send money or to pay the professionals to do the work. And it falls into the category of the kind of thing we don't really want to do. Jonah didn't really want to do what God had for him. 
Evangelism for Jonah was in the category of something I didn't really just want to take personal cost and sacrifice to make happen. He didn't want to put his relationship on the line. And so he pushed to arm's length God's call on his life. Jump in at Jonah verse uh, 1 of chapter 1 with me. We're just going to spend a few minutes on the first uh, four verses here. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. You see, God had asked Jonah to reach out to the Ninevites, but Jonah didn't really even want to. In fact, Jonah, as we'll see in a second, was flat out trying to miss the opportunities that God had for him. He was sure that the Lord had different and better, the Lord did not have good plans for him and that he had different and better plans. Jump in at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. In other words, be a spokesperson for me and call them to repentance, for their evil has come up before me. But, verse 3, instead... Jonah rose to flee to, first time, Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to, second time, Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to, third time, Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Three times in this one verse, we are told that Jonah is going to Tarshish. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I have my own plans. God says, I've got something great for you. If you will just go along with what I've got for you, Jonah's like, Got this just fine myself, Jesus. So, Jonah is running away from God's call on his life. Let me say that again because we've all got a lot of Jonah in us. Jonah is running away from God's call on his life. You see, God's plan for Jonah, for the world, for his people, and for you His plan is to receive glory that he alone deserves. I believe that plan cannot and will not fail. God is going to receive glory and honor that he deserves. Because if God is all-powerful, if he is altogether holy, if he is entirely good through and through, if he is who the Bible claims that he is, perfect in every way, that there really is a God like that, who is perfect in character and nature, then he not only deserves all glory and honor, but he is going to receive all glory and honor. The issue is not whether or not he does. The issue is whether we participate in that mission. Jonah was sure that going his own plan was going to be the way to find the fulfillment that he sure he was sure he knew of. God had different plans. The issue is whether you will participate in God's plan to receive glory. <laughs> Jonah said, no thanks. God said go. Jonah said no. He had other plans. Or so he thought. Look at verse 4. Jonah 1, verse 4. Good try, Jonah. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now press pause for a bit here. 
God sends such a huge storm that they have to throw off their excess cargo to lighten the load of the ship. And they soon decide, because they find out that Jonah's running away from the Lord, they soon decide that Jonah was the most excessive type of cargo on board. So they literally throw him off the ship in the hope that Jonah's God will calm the storm because they realize that he's running away from him. Now let's press pause in the story for just a second here. Imagine that you're Jonah. (laughs) In this moment, after they've thrown you off the ship into a raging sea storm, they've just hurled you off the side of the ship. You're frozen in midair. The ship in the periphery behind you, (laughs) raging seas awaiting below. And at this point in the story, frozen in midair, if I'm Jonah, I'm thinking two things. Two things are running through my head. The first is, <laughs> this is sort of silly, but so this is how I die. The second is God saying to me, what you going to do now, Jonah? How's that plan working for you, Jonah? Because you know what, buddy? It's a long way to swim to Tarshish. How's that fleeing from my presence plan working. How's that you go in your route and your plan and your abilities to achieve what you think you are supposed to achieve? How's that working as opposed to do what I've called you to do? Because Jonah, I'm going to receive glory. Guess what? I'm demonstrating it right now. You don't even know it yet. You don't even know it till we get to verse 17, but I'm demonstrating it right now because at this point in the story, Jonah is totally helpless and is headed for certain death. But of course, again, God has greater plans, bigger plans. Verse 17, check it out. And the Lord appointed, this is language intended to highlight, intended to highlight God's sovereignty. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish Three days and three nights. There's a lot we could say about this verse. We're just going to say a couple things before we move on about this verse. Number one, there is nothing in the Hebrew word that means whale specifically, just for the record. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, It could have been a whale, um, but the words used in Hebrew just talk about like fishness and bigness. So all we really know is that it lived in the ocean and swam and it was large. So... We're just going to cover that by saying it might have been a whale. We don't know. The text is totally ambiguous about that. It just means big fish. Second thing is this. We're not going to get out the diagrams and the medical textbooks and biology textbooks to try to determine once for all the validity of whether it is physically possible for a man to be swallowed by a big fish. Okay? We're not going to do that, but (laughs) uh, just consider a couple things here. Number one. These are nowhere near ironclad. Uh, You can look it up yourself. There's some evidence for it, uh, but it's not an ironclad thing. There are at least two relatively modern occurrences of people being swallowed by a big fish and living to tell about it. They happened in 1771 and in 1891. Secondly, there are species of fish that we know have throats that are large enough to swallow an adult man. Thirdly, it is physically possible for a man to be unconscious for days at a time and live after regaining consciousness, given a few things like food and water in that environment. So, 
Suffice it to say that verse 17 is at least physically plausible in basic terms, even without divine intervention. But if you believe that God is sovereign over creation, the demonstration of which is implied in verse 17 when it speaks of God appointing a great fish to swallow up Jonah, well then a big fish swallowing a man is not so much crazy talk as it might just be evidence of how serious God is about you doing what he's called you to do. So there's Jonah, helplessly plunging to what he thinks is his certain death when God sends a big fish. And at this point, Jonah doesn't even know if being swallowed means death or life. I think he probably assumes it's death. So he does what we would would all do if we're about to be swallowed by a big fish. Uh, Swim like crazy. No, that's not what he does. He prays with a passion about how he is helplessly lost without God's intervention in that moment. He prays with passion about how he is without hope and headed for certain death if unless God brings him to safety. And his prayer is answered. He is saved. He's spit up on shore. The text says he's sort of vomited on shore. And he says, okay, Lord, I'm listening. I'll do what you say. I'll finally relent. I'll give in. I've been going my own way. It's time to go your way. And so he goes to Nineveh and he preaches repentance. And guess what? Eight-word sermon, and it works. It works. The whole city repents. Look at Jonah 3, verses 3 through 5. So, because of all that we've talked about before, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jumped down to the middle of four. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words, simple message. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. Those are symbols of repentance. From the greatest of them to the least of them, his outreach to the Ninevites worked. Now you'd think, You'd think that, A, being rescued from a raging storm in the middle of an ocean and being swallowed by a big fish that was sent by God, and B, having your simple eight-word message responded to by the whole city, in light of where you've come from, you'd think that those would be enough to turn you into an evangelist for the grace of God, right? Like you'd think... What more demonstration do we need that there's a sovereign God who's got a plan for you if you'll just come along? What more demonstration do we need? You'd think it would have meant that he would have become an evangelistic hot mess of fervor, telling everybody, can you believe what happened to me? But that's not actually what happened. Because Jonah's heart was set on self. I mean, listen, if I'm tossed from a ship in a raging sea (laughs) and I'm saved because a big fish swallows me. Everybody I meet for the rest of my life is going to hear about a big fish. (laughs) I could be interviewing for a job, talking to the president. wouldn't matter the context. I would start out with, hi, I'm Scott Wakefield. (laughs) I was swallowed by a big fish and spit up on shore and I'm allowed to tell about it. But that's not what happens. You'd think, you'd think, let's make a fine point on it. You'd 
think that after having experienced God's miraculous hand of grace on your life, that you'd tell the story like it was the most important thing that ever happened to you. But that's not what happened. Look at Jonah 3.10. This is how Jonah reacted. When God saw what they did, in other words, that they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 1, chapter 4, but it, meaning God's action of grace, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, Hebrew is a bit of a weird language. Um, the translation of verse 1 where, at least in my version, it says, as it does on screen there, it displeased Jonah exceedingly is way, way too soft. Uh, it's kind of a nice way to say it. It's like it was translated by the British, like the matter displeased Jonah very exceedingly, you know, that kind of thing. Like when you say it like that, it doesn't sound like it was that bad, you know. The matter displeased Jonah exceedingly, all right. Um, the literal translation of the Hebrew is something more akin to this. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. In other words, what God had done in extending grace to the Ninevites, in Jonah's mind, was so evil that the Hebrew calls it evilly evil. Jonah was livid that God had relented. Jonah was angry that God extended grace. Keep reading verse 2. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I knew this was going to happen. Verse 2. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, listen to this, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was angry that God was gracious. He goes so far as to say he would rather be dead than live in a world where God extends mercy and grace and compassion towards sinners. Wow. <laughs> Friends, anger is often, not always, but it's often a, uh, a self-righteous judging emotion. Certainly not always, but it often is. It's often a self-righteous judging emotion that comes from not fully trusting that God's way is the right way. From not fully trusting God's provision and God's justice. That somehow in God being gracious and merciful, that he must have missed something. I don't know what you're missing because I see it, Lord. Why don't you bring the wrath? I think we sometimes, we sometimes inwardly despise how God works. Especially when applied to others. 
Because, and this is hard for Christians, because when we do actually believe that others deserve God's mercy and grace, then we are held accountable for treating them that way. Sometimes we stay in anger so that we can feel like we don't have to be responsible. Friends, in this series we've been asking this question. What does, what does how we act say about what we really believe? Because we can learn about the root of our belief what we really believe by looking at the fruit of our lives. And in this account in Scripture, the fruit of Jonah's behavior, his anger, revealed that even though he really did believe, because the text tells us this, he really did believe that God was gracious and merciful. He really just wanted that grace and mercy to be applied to him and not the non-Jewish Gentile Ninevites. Perhaps we are not always so unlike Jonah as we think. Because when we act like the salvation of sinners isn't worth our embarrassment or personal sacrifice, we're revealing some things about what we really believe. Like maybe sometimes we Christians really believe that God will actually extend mercy to our enemies. And there's something about that we don't like. Or that he's actually going to extend mercy to people who we don't like or who don't like us. Maybe sometimes it shows that what we really believe is that we have earned our rightful place with God. It's time they've got to pay their dues before they get here. Perhaps sometimes when we prefer our comfort to others knowing Christ, we are not much different than Jonah. You see, Jonah didn't didn't want grace for his enemies. And friends, when the gospel has taken hold in us, when we realize that a perfect sinless God in Jesus lived a life we could not and gave on our account his perfect sinless life instead of us receiving the wrath of God, when we get that really, when the gospel has taken hold in us, then we want that grace for our enemies. And for those who don't like us. Or for those who don't vote like us or for those who are not from around here, or from those who believe something differently than us. There are times for us all when we've all been like Jonah, running from what God wants for us, friends. And we all have Ninevites who we have thought deserved wrath instead of grace. But friends, we received the gospel through someone else's sacrifice. That's the only way you receive it. You don't receive it otherwise.
It's false if it hasn't come through the sacrifice of Jesus. And since we've received it by the sacrifice of a perfect, sinless God who loves us, who loves us, then we are called to do the same for someone else. I said a couple things earlier. Uh, One of them was that if I were saved from certain death by being swallowed by a big fish, I'd tell everybody. (laughs) Um, Which is partially a lie. Because in reality, the salvation that any follower of Christ knows is the salvation that makes being coughed up on shore seem like small potatoes, really. And, And I haven't been telling everyone I know about that as much as I probably would tell them about being swallowed and coughed up on shore by a big fish. I also said earlier about that missed opportunity at the coffee shop, and truth is I kind of threw the priest and my pastor under the bus because there's actually more to the story. It's my pastor friend, the priest, and the barista. Uh, The priest's name was Father Doug. The barista was Blake. And when Father Doug asked the barista about being in the Navy, I think he knew what he was doing. Because he knew that Blake was going to wax poetically about his time in uniform. He had a great time in the Navy. I mean, Blake talked for 10 minutes about all the cool places he'd been in the world, all the things that he had enjoyed doing, all the friends he had made, all of the lifelong lessons that he would take with him. He talked for 10 minutes about how an amazing experience that was. And then when he sort of talked himself out, uh, Father Doug said, wow, it sounds like you really enjoyed the Navy, huh? He said, yeah, I mean, I loved it. It's a major, important part of my life. And I love telling people all about it. And uh, Father, Doug said, Father Doug said, how did you join the Navy? How did you get, up, get into the Navy in the first place? <laughs> and Blake said, well, actually, a recruiter told me about it and talked me into it. Hmm? Father Doug said, I thought you don't like people pushing their beliefs on you. He demonstrated, you can do this winsomely. You can do this well. All it takes is knowing that you've received what you couldn't earn and telling the story of your own life with Jesus as the hero and not you. Friends, if God is good and salvation is real, then tell that story, the story of God's work to bring you to himself. Let me just close with one last thing. I hear a lot of people nowadays... uh, you know, because it's kind of cool to be anti-church. <clears throat> I hear a lot of people nowadays say things like, <laughs> I don't really want to invite my friends to church. I invite them to Jesus. I get it. I get it. This isn't about First Christian Church. This is about Jesus. But here's the thing. We actually believe people come to know Jesus because of this. We, we want you to bring your friends here so that they can hear about the message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites that you once heard and accepted and said, 
Only by the power of the cross can I do this. We actually believe that people meet Jesus here and that lives are changed. So, leave today telling a story that invites people into relationship with Him. Just as you've experienced through Christ's sacrifice for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this moment, (coughs) we recognize afresh (laughs) the awesome truth that you love us so much that as your creation, that you as creator love us so much that you did not leave us to our own devices for we in our sin are trapped and unable to fix ourselves. And so we love the truth that you loved us enough to send for us your son Jesus who lived a perfect and sinless life on our behalf so that instead of the wrath that we deserved from you because you are holy and perfect God and sin is an affront to your character and nature. Instead of the wrath that we deserved, Lord, you gave us grace and mercy and peace and rest. We love you for that, Lord. And ask that that would be the story we tell about our lives. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us the kind of faith that is stretched as we say yes to the plan you have for us. That you give us an amazing opportunity to be a part of your mission of you receiving deserved glory and your goodness being made known. Give us courage for that task. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.